the discourses of the Buddha are divided into different collections. What I now have in my hand is called the Digger Nikaya, the long discourses. Nikaya means collections. And they are only put together in that way because these discourses are of greater length than others. They have been put together in these different collections to help with the understanding and also with the remembering of them. So here we have a brand new translation which was made by a professor of um, English in England and uh, it's an excellent uh, translation so it would be quite good to start with that. The discourse which I have chosen for tonight is a discourse which is particularly geared for lay people how to organize their lives. It does not refer to meditation just yet, but because we are going to be together for quite some time, I thought it might be useful to even have an, a knowledge of what the Buddha talked about, what is important for an ordinary life. It's a very famous discourse, well known wherever Theravadan teaching <coughs> is used it's called the Sigalavada Sutta and Sigala is the young man to whom this discourse is being given by the Buddha and it comes about in quite an interesting manner so we'll see what this is all about huh? Sutta to Sigala, Advice to Lay People, it has as an undertitle. It starts out with, Thus have I heard, which in Pali is Evam Mesutam, which is Ananda reciting the discourses at the first great council of Arahants, and he says that he has heard it like that. And he gives the um, place where he heard it and he gives the uh, name of the people so that the other monks can check whether they were there also and see whether he's reciting it correctly. Once the Buddha was staying at Rajagaha at the squirrel's feeding place in the bamboo grove. Rajagaha is a city and the squirrel's feeding place in the bamboo grove was a special place where he was uh, staying at the time. Now at that time, Sigalaka, the householder's son, having got up early and gone out of Rajagaha, was paying homage with wet clothes and hair and with joined palms to the different directions, east, south, west, north, the Nadia and the Zenith. Well, what he was doing was he had taken a bath, his clothes were still wet, and so was his hair, and he was joining his palms in Anjali, what we did when we were taking the precepts like this. And he was um, worshipping in 
the four directions and up and below. And the Lord, the Buddha, having risen early and dressed, took his robe and bowl, went to Rajagaha for alms. And seeing Sigala paying homage to the different directions, he said, Householder's son, why have you got up early to pay homage to the different directions? Now the Buddha took his alms bowl to Rajagaha to go for his alms round to get his um, food. And when he saw this young man do this, he wanted to know why he's doing this. So then he answered him, My father, when he was dying, told me to do so. And so, out of respect for my father's words, which I revere, honor, and hold sacred, I have got up early to pay homage in this way to the six directions. And then the Buddha says, But, householder's son, that's not the right way to pay homage to the six directions according to the noble discipline. Well, and then the young man says, how should one pay homage to the six directions according to the noble discipline? It would be good if the Buddha were to teach me the proper way to pay homage according to the noble discipline. So then the Buddha said, listen carefully, pay attention, and I will speak. And Sigala said, yes, Lord. I wonder if the story is in it. There is a, a um, preface to this story, which apparently isn't here, so I'll quickly tell you about it. The father was a very devout um, and spiritually inclined person and a follower of the Buddha, but the son was totally uninterested. So the father thought he would like to find some sort of way, anything, to get the son to be interested. So when he was dying, he let the son promise on the deathbed that he would do this every day. He would pay homage to the six directions, worship to six directions every single day, every morning, in the hope that the Buddha would come by, see this, and do exactly as he did, namely ask, why are you doing this? And then when he was told that the father had asked this on his deathbed, then the father hoped that the Buddha would give him the right uh, way to do, to be worshipful. And this is exactly what he had hoped for, and this is now happening. So, so the Buddha says, young householder, it is by abandoning the four defilements of actions. Let me just see whether there's anything. Um, by not doing evil from the four causes, by not following the six ways of wasting one's substance, through avoiding fourteen evil ways that the Aryan discipline covers the six directions, and by such practice becomes a conqueror of both worlds so that all will go well with him in this world and the next and at the breaking up of the body after death he will go to a good destiny now then he starts explaining what all these things are the Buddha so what are the four defilements of action that are aban abandoned 
Taking life is one. <clears throat> Taking what is not given is the second. Sexual misconduct is the third. And lying is the fourth. These are the four defilements of action that a person abandons. And then he added, Taking life and stealing, lying, adultery, the wise do not approve. Now what are the four causes of evil from which a person refrains? Evil action springs from attachment, from ill will, from folly, from fear. If the noble disciple does not act out of attachment, ill will, folly or fear, he will not do evil from any of these four causes. Now when we when we speaks about attachment, he is actually referring, and he does so in the next paragraph, referring to desire, which means that we are attached to something specific that we want. So the first two are hate and greed. Ill will is hate and desire is greed. And obviously these are the two of our three evil roots and not only that, they are the first two of our hindrances and obstacles which are constantly obstructing our spiritual practice. But more than that, they constantly obstruct our daily lives. Anything that has to do with hate or greed will bring sorrow to ourselves. And if it's enough hate and enough greed, it might actually bring sorrow to others also. If it's minor, we'll just be sorrowed ourselves. If it isn't, well, we could really hurt other people too. So the first thing is the desire, and the second thing is the hate. Now, desire is considered not to be anything that is very um, unwholesome in a worldly way because our whole society and our whole economy is based on desire getting something whatever it is that we want to get we want to get more of this or more of that we maybe we just want to get peace of mind maybe we just want to get a nice place to live whatever it is we want to get something <coughs> on the spiritual path that attitude will have to go because that attitude makes it impossible to give oneself to the spiritual practice completely, wholeheartedly. Just as I was explaining last night when we took precept and refuge, if we don't give ourselves completely, we're not going to get the results. If we do it for getting something, it's a waste of time. 
it's giving something and it's giving up now in worldly ways and in our way of society everybody wants something and because most people don't get what they want hate arises ill will the only time when it becomes possible to be contented totally is when we don't want anything the first and second noble truths the first noble truths noble truths of dukkha and the second one its cause namely craving desire the Buddha compared desire to being in debt one's got to always pay with interest we have to get the same thing back over and over and because of the attachment which arises out of that and attachment and desire go together because we wouldn't desire if we weren't attached to it because of that we can't go forward we're stuck whatever we're attached to makes us stuck because whatever it is see if you were really solidly attached to the pillow you're sitting on could never go anywhere it has to sit on this pillow for the rest of this life that's attachment naturally I'm only using the physical attachment symbolically for the emotional attachment <coughs> it doesn't matter whether it's people things experiences ideas or views the last one is the worst one Buddha said in the first discourse in this collection all our views are wrong every single one is based on the me concept so our desires bring attachment and therefore we can't go anywhere and therefore it's very detrimental to us now ill will is hate dislike rejection resentment resistance and if we haven't learned yet to let go of that concerning ourselves we'll certainly won't be able to let go of it with regard to other people the first and foremost practice has to be a lack of judgmental view about oneself we recognize ourselves for what we are hopefully we don't blame it we change it long as we blame ourselves we have ill will towards ourselves we will certainly have the same for others no reason why it should change with the person that happens to be in front of one ill will is compared by the Buddha to a bilious disease 
the bar coming up. <clears throat> that is now an emotional state which is not supported by society and not taken into consideration by our economy unless it's the war machine. Then, of course, it thrives on it. So if it is the one or the other, our economy always thrives on it, either greed or hate. Now, all beings, all human beings, up to the non-returner, one step before full enlightenment, have hate and greed. And unless we accept that as our own personal difficulty and as something that we can work on and therefore also accept it as the difficulty of everybody else, in the hope that they will start working on it soon or have maybe started working on it we'll always be in difficulty we've got them they are both part and parcel of being a human being now as we go along this path and experience some path and fruit they get less, more insight, less of it. But it has to be so profound that it becomes a past moment. And if it isn't, the difficulty has to be accepted. There is hate and greed. Because the moment we accept it, it doesn't mean that we become complacent about it. But when we see it for what it is, we will certainly work on it. One of the remedies for ill will is the loving-kindness meditation, which we'll do here every evening together. And i like to mention to all of you Please start every meditation you do with loving kindness for yourself. And if you don't feel it, think it. What one thinks, which is also a sense consciousness, eventually produces some feeling. If we think it often enough, then the feelings will follow. At least we've got our mind in the right direction. So any meditation that you do, whatever it may be, start it with a feeling of appreciation, a feeling of contentment about yourself. Without that, this path is not only difficult, but it isn't joyful. And the Buddha said, in no uncertain terms that worldly joy is one of the prerequisites for proper meditation. That inner joy that comes from having a mind which is at ease, which is not the meditative joy yet. 
So this is one of the aspects of counteracting ill will. To counteract desire, it does help to look and analyze that which we desire in its details. But the biggest help is if we take impermanence into account and never forget it. Now here, during this month, we have the best possible conditions for becoming aware of the deepest and most profound truth that the Buddha taught, not on a superficial level, but on the level where it really touches heart and mind so that a different person emerges. The person we are is what we think and believe. And as we believe it, we feel it. So we can change that. And as we have the time and the situation here, impermanence should be one of the main considerations when we use mindfulness of all that arises within us. How it arises and ceases within us and outside of us. But not just accepting that and not just in the meditation but outside of the meditation. As we see it clearer and clearer it becomes the inner reality of who we are. And as it becomes the inner reality of who we are, we really see the Buddha's pathway. And that, of course, if we see the impermanence, desire does get smaller, one would hope. And then the other two which are mentioned, which are the four causes of evil, and they are different here than sometimes in other suttas. The next one is folly, and then fear. Well, folly, Buddha, it's a very nice word, very often it's stupidity, that's what's used, the word. Folly is much more, much more polite, of course. Now here it's ignorance. The word ignorance really has a very, very particular meaning in the Buddhist terminology because it means that we are ignorant of who we really are. We think we're somebody. And it isn't maybe even correct to say that we're nobody. It may not even be correct to say we aren't. It's also not correct, we are. Maybe the latter is the best one. But it's certainly the viewpoint that an ordinary human being has of him or herself is 
one which creates all the problems. A real person who needs to be protected, who wants certain things and should get them, who wants to be safe, loved, praised, supported, and all the rest of it. So that's the ignorance that we have. And fear, of course, is actually usually attached to ill will because we can only fear that which we dislike. We don't fear anything or anyone whom we love. So fear springs from hate. If we're afraid of death, for instance, well, then means we certainly don't like it. If we were to be quite even-minded about it, why fear it? So fear and hate go together. And out of fear very often springs aggression. And what is fear based on? The same as desire or greed and hate. The wrong view of self. Afraid of being hurt. There's somebody there that could be hurt. There's somebody there that could be physically or emotionally hurt. There's somebody there that could be annihilated. There's somebody there that could not be thought of as a wonderful or great person. So the ego support is lacking. So these fears of death, of whatever it may be, all spring from that wrong view. And that wrong view is going to stay with us until through practice we have become concentrated to the point where there is no doubt that this is a total myth. It's an optical illusion, it's a mental illusion, it's an emotional illusion. The whole thing is made up by our minds. And our minds are notorious magicians. They can do anything. They can say yes or no to the same proposition. And if we keep on doing that which is negative, we'll believe it. So we have ignorance and we have fear. If the noble disciple does not act out of desire, ill will, ignorance or fear, he will not do evil from any one of those four causes. And then he added, desire and hate, fear and ignorance. He who breaks the law through these loses all his fair reputation like the moon at waning time. Desire and hate, fear and ignorance, he who never yields to these grows in goodness and good repute like the moon at waxing time. So he's giving us symbolism for the moon that's waxing and waning. When it's waxing, it grows, and when it wanes, it declines. And whatever one does out of desire or hate, fear or ignorance, can very easily bring one's being 
to having a lesser good um, less a good reputation, a, a bad reputation, and also, of course, less happiness and the opposite. Now, the four causes of evil, which the Buddha talks about here, are, of course, related to the first three, are the same as the three roots of evil, which are greed, hate, and delusion. And then it's added here, fear. Now, the underlying one is always the delusion for all of them. And since we can't just yet get rid of that delusion that there's actually somebody here who needs all these things, we need to work on the others. We need to work on greed and hate. And as we purify those, the mind becomes clearer and clearer. And we can see that the delusion is actually there. And sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. Now, our emotions, our passions, drown us like ocean waves. And when huge ocean waves drown us, all we can see is the water of the wave. Only when that wave becomes calm again and the surface of the ocean is smooth, will we be able to look into the depths and see below the water to the sand and the coral and the fish and the same it is with our passions long we've got them we don't see a thing all we see is the passion anybody who's ever got angry knows that all they can see at that time is anger and the same goes for the desire so the purification of emotion brings clarification of thought It's a formula to abide by. That doesn't mean that we get rid of our emotions, but it means that we may be able to see how detrimental they are to us, how we can't see anything clearly. And again and again, we might be able to watch their arising and ceasing and not get caught in them. The more of that we can do, the easier our life becomes. If we can't re re reconcile and connect this practice with daily living, we're practicing for nothing. It's got to be daily living. We only have one mind, one body, which lives from morning to night. So if this practice doesn't change our daily lives, what are we doing it for? Next thing is six ways of wasting one's substance, one's wealth. Yes, it's wealth. This is an older translation, and sometimes the older translations are better. <laughs> um, substance wealth, huh? 
which are the six ways of wasting one's wealth that one does not follow? Ah, but it's dangerous. <laughs> Indulgence in strong drink and sloth-producing drugs. Well, that's a new translation. <laughs> that's not in the old one. Is <laughs> one way of wasting one's substance, one's wealth. Haunting the streets at unfitting times is another one. Frequenting shows and entertainment leads to dissipation of wealth. Being addicted to gambling, keeping bad company, habitual idleness. I think that these things are well, some of them, of course, are, are obvious. I mean, there's no question about it that if one is a, a habitual drunkard, that one is going to waste one's, well, not only wealth, but life. But gambling and too much entertainment, haunting the streets at unfinting times, habitual idleness, it's... um. Habitual idleness is um, a very interesting um, defilement because idleness is particularly in the mind. It's not workaholic, which is the opposite of that. It's not that, that one has to keep on the go all the time, which is the opposite of habitual idleness. A mind which is habitually idle is a mind which will never go into the depth where the reality, the absolute reality can be found. It will be content with whatever is going and trying to escape Dukkha through the many escape hatches that we have provided for ourselves. And several of them are mentioned here. Gambling, drinking, entertainment and shows. These are escape hatches for dukkha. If the mind is idle, if it's a, a slothful mind, it will try to do that. Rather than trying to see the reality of what it, a human life means. And here again we have keeping bad company. And the Buddha mentions this over and over again, the kind of people we are together with. Birds of a feather flock together. And it is very interesting to note, and I've seen it many times, that if someone tries to be together with people that there's no fittingness together, somebody leaves. There's a certain way of fitting together. So bad company, the Buddha is going to talk in detail about what it means to keep bad company. It's a very interesting aspect of this particular discourse. Because it here, the greatest detail, it shows whom we should never be with. Now obviously, people who meditate will meet 
other meditators in a meditation course. But what about our daily lives? This bad company is such an important point. It's mentioned in the Mahamangala Sutta. It is mentioned in all the five hindrances as an antidote for all our hindrances, hindrances, noble friends and noble conversation. It is uh, the story of Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and attendant for 25 years, who said to the Buddha, Sir, a good friend is half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is the whole of the holy life. A kind of people we are together with. Because we are very easily influenced until we have reached a plateau a plateau of path and fruit which can no longer be changed have become a noble one until then we are easily influenced and not only that but most people are dependent upon the approval of their peers in order to keep their ego illusion intact because they don't approve of themselves well enough so they look for that and therefore the kind of company that we keep is so important there are these six dangers attached to addiction to strong drink and sloth-producing drugs. Present waste of money, increased crawling, liability to sickness, loss of good name, indecent exposure of one's person, and weakening of the intellect. just want to see how these people are translating that. totally different. Now it's quite e- that is quite easily seen that if a person is addicted to drink or drugs that not only does one waste one's money and that there is a liability to physical sickness, but there's also a weakening of one's intellect because these things do have, both of them, drink and drug, have an effect on that. And so the Buddha is trying to tell this young man, who was just over 20, um, how dangerous it is. And so he's actually, what he's doing is he's telling him, uh, instead of worshipping in these six directions that he did every day, and he did that for several months until the Buddha finally came by, um, he should watch out for these things. And uh, gives him a very long and uh, detailed explanation how to live. So I think there's nothing more to be said about being drunk and taking drugs and we know that these things are very detrimental. And there are six dangers attached to haunting the streets at unfitting times. 
one is defenseless without protection and so are one's wife and children and so is one's property one could be suspected of crime and false reports are pinned on one and one can encounter all sorts of unpleasantness so haunting the streets at unfitting times means instead of being at home in bed where one belongs being out and about huh? King's Cross hmm? anybody doesn't know what's going on in King's Cross you can ask later there are these six dangers attached to frequenting entertainment and fairs one is liable to think where is their dancing or singing where are they playing music where are they reciting where can that be heard hand clapping where are the drums in other words the mind is going outwards trying to find an escape hatch in the entertainment when instead of reading something about the Buddha's teaching one reads the advertisements for the different movies in the paper and then goes out there and looks at them no matter what they are about then one is attached and uh, desires this kind of entertainment or the same with the television one just turns it on indiscriminately whatever just press the button and there it goes it is um, these are all escapes from our own kind of disquiet dis-ease inner dis-ease restlessness our dissatisfaction but instead of using this dissatisfaction into looking at its underlying cause we try to remove it through the overlay of the distraction and although this is um, worded in frequenting fairs and entertainment it is exactly what the world is doing today nobody is immune from that and haunting streets at unfitting times we know what it means to be out in bad company bad company meaning people who have absolutely no idea that there is a spiritual life that one's inner life is actually spiritual if we just open up to it so the Buddha gives all the six dangers to everything that he had formerly said that these are the six ways of wasting one's um, wealth and each one of them has again six dangers attached to it so the first one was the drink and drug which has six dangers attached then the next one is haunting the streets and then the next one is um, frequenting fairs and entertainment each one has another has six dangers attached to it so there are six different ones with six dangers so we've got 36 dangers there are these six dangers attached to gambling the winner makes enemies the loser the whales has lost one wastes one's present wealth one's word is not trusted in the assembly one is despised by one's friends and companions one is not in demand for marriage because a gambler cannot afford to maintain a wife uh, a gambler one would one could actually have a um, 
another way of looking that, at that. A person who cannot look after their own property, a person who cannot look after their wealth or just whatever they own in a good way. And the Buddha will, in the course of this discourse, explain how one should look after one's property. As a lay person, one has duties and responsibilities and to family and uh, for one's own upkeep. And so one needs to look after that in a sensible manner. Now, there are these six dangers attached to keeping bad company. If one wants to keep bad company, one may be together with a gambler, a glutton, a drunkard, a cheat, a trickster, or a bully, and think that they are one's friends. He's naming six different kinds of people that could be this friend. And there are these six dangers attached to idleness. Thinking it's too cold, one does not work. Thinking it's too hot, one does not work. Thinking it's too early, one does not work. Thinking it's too late, one does not work. Thinking I'm too hungry, one does not work. Thinking I'm too full, one does not work. And thus the Buddha spoke. Actually, he also uses the same fix attached to idleness for meditation. Too late. I'm too hungry, I'm too full. All of these are reasons for not meditating. But here it says that there are also reasons for a lazy person not to work. And the Buddha spoke the following words. Some are drinking mates and some profess their friendship to your face. But those who are your friends in need, they alone are friends indeed. Sleeping late, adultery, picking quarrels, doing harm, Evil friends and stinginess, these six things destroy a man. He who goes with wicked friends and spends his time in wicked deeds, in this world and the next as well, that one will come to suffer woe. Now here's a new one in here that hadn't been in there before, sleeping late. Sleeping late, adultery, picking quarrels, doing harm. Evil friends and stinginess. Now, stinginess obviously the opposite of generosity. And he says these six destroy a person. So, now evil friends, maybe we can figure out easily. Picking calls, yes, and doing harm. But stinginess and sleeping late, these destroy a person. Why is that so? Because stinginess is, um, comes from a mind which is contracted. We make our mind so biased only towards ourselves that there's nothing left in our thinking process which goes outward to others. Now obviously he also said that one has to look after one's own property. So, what is he talking about? A balance. The middle way. Stinginess is also based on hate, of course, but it is 
primarily based on the contracted mind which has no overview that there is universal existence and that we are all part of one creation so there is it is destructive to be like that and we do have in uh, the story of Scrooge which is always a sort of a, a typical uh, example of that which um, hurts one when one is so stingy and then sleeping late why is that? because it's laziness there's no need to uh, an adult person has certain requirements for sleep but nothing beyond that and uh, a mind which is full of vigor never mind the body the mind that is full of vigor and inquiry and interest and wanting to know the truth does not want to sleep into daylight and uh, be um, lazy so a lazy mind will of course not um, produce also in the physical way so it's destructive adultery is of course destructive because there's always lots of dukkha attached to that so that is quite clear those others and here again if one goes with wicked friends and spends one's time in wicked deeds because the wicked friends make one spend one's time in wicked deeds in this world and the next as well that person will come to suffer woe here the sleeping late is translated as sleeping till the sun is high so that makes it even clearer huh? and here the, um, the bad friends moving in bad circles is heading for ruin so um, not just bad friends but moving in bad circles having a sort of kind of companions which have the wrong ideas <laughs> next one is quite nicely translated dicing, wrenching, drinking too dancing, singing, daylight sleep untimely prowling, evil friends and stinginess destroy a man so he's uh, get, um, recapitulating dicing is gambling, wrenching, uh, womanizing uh, drinking too dancing, singing, daylight sleep now dancing, singing should be understood correctly usually isn't it is exactly that uh, sort of nighttime um, entertainment that where there are music halls and that type of thing it isn't necessarily um, an opera singer and it isn't necessarily maybe a ballet dancer who needs extreme discipline to get anywhere with it and so does an opera singer need extreme discipline so um, this is um, nighttime entertainment music hall type of thing um, which is meant here he plays with dice and drinks strong drink and goes with others well-loved wives he takes the lower baser course and fades away like waning moon
Well, here this says not just that he fades away like waning moon, he says the fame, the good repute of such people fades away like waning moon. The drunkard, broke and destitute, ever thirsting as he drinks, like stone in water sinks in debt, soon bereft of all his kin. Well, I don't think that we need to discuss that. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? He who spends his days in sleep, it says he habitually sleeps in the day, eh? and makes the night his waking time, ever drunk and debauched, cannot manage a household, cannot keep a decent home. Too cold, too hot, too late, they cry, thus pushing, uh, pushing all their work aside, till every chance they might have had of doing good has slipped away. Now here, this is not uh, uninteresting to read, that because of their laziness and idleness, they are losing their chances of doing good for others. Not naturally, they are losing their chance of doing good for themselves. Here it also says that for one's own chances slip away because a young man is idle and pushes his work aside. But he who reckons cold and heat as less than straws and like a man undertakes a task in hand, his joy will never grow the less. Happiness and prosperity do not decline to, whom, to him who dutifully attends to the affairs. To be reliable, trustworthy, stick to one's word, do exactly as one says, and use one's capacity for thinking for the good. We have the capacity for thinking. In meditation we often lament about it, but in daily living it needs to be used in the right way. Now, that is not by any means all of this discourse. In fact, it goes on and on and on. Because it also tells the next thing, who are one's good friends? And we'll do that, we'll hear about that tomorrow so that we can see these are all the things one shouldn't do but now we after that we see the things one should do and if we have this idea that oh we don't do any of that we don't go to shows don't gamble don't drink don't commit adultery but are we really awake and aware in our daily living to the point where the mind does not seek the escape hatches but stays mindful and introspective so that it can see the truth within 
here the Buddha tries to give this young man a blueprint for everyday life and he mentions all the gross difficulties that people have and as we can see it's nothing new people have been doing it for at least two and a half thousand years probably much longer but that's when the Buddha came around and said not to do these things and he will then continue to give the blueprint how to live properly if there's any question on anything this is the time to ask them you mean about meditation well this is not concerned actually with meditation this is a person who doesn't get up in the morning and likes to lie in bed and uh, bed and uh, you know out of idleness and laziness but um, for instance if in the in the very hot countries we meditate very early like four o'clock or 3.30 even in the morning and um, rest during the hot hours between 11 and 4 and uh, then meditate at night it's, um, it's strictly a matter of recognizing whether we are trying to do our very best making effort in the right direction or whether we're trying to find an escape hatch you know, their circumstances are different everywhere. Anything else? You said that um, fear arises from hate. How about if you, if you have tremendous desire for someone, but you, couldn't you fear that they're going to go? Yes, of course, but you don't uh, hate the person you hate the idea of losing the person the person is not the one you hate this is why this uh, attachment kind of so-called love is never pure it's always um, partially subjected to, to hate because of this fear which has nothing to do with the person itself it's always a fear of losing and that's the hate part of it that's why the metta of the Buddha's uh, description does not have a person as its um, uh, direction or goal but strictly has the purification of the heart and the cultivation of the love quality of the heart as its direction never to be directed strictly at one, two, three or four people because then that exactly that arises, that fear anything else? And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment
Look into your heart and see whether there's any anger or worry, fear or dislike, boredom or rejection, pride, If you find any of that, or anything else, that may be unpleasant, not beneficial, let it float away like black clouds in the sky being dispersed by the wind. and then become aware of the spacious purity of your heart and fill it with love and compassion to overflowing so that you're completely filled from head to toe with a feeling of love and compassion surrounded by it embedded in it Now let the love and compassion arising out of the purity of your heart overflow and reach out to the person sitting nearest you here and fill him or her with love and compassion surround and embrace him or her with them
Now let love and compassion overflow and reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone from head to toe. Embrace and surround everyone with your love and your compassion as a gift from your heart. Now think of your parents. Fill them with the best that your heart has to give, your love and your compassion. Fill them, embrace them, surround them. Think of those people who are near and dear to you. Fill their hearts with your love and your compassion. Give them the gift that your heart can offer. Think of all your good friends.
with the warmth of your love and the care of your compassion reach out to them fill them and surround them and embrace them with those feelings from your heart Think of all the people who are part of your life, wherever you may meet them. Whether you know them or not, whether you speak to them or not. Let them all enter into your heart. filled with love and compassion for them. Think of any one person whom you find difficult to love and open your heart to that person so that there's no obstruction in your own heart. Let love and compassion flow to that person.
open your heart as wide as is possible and let love and compassion flow out of it like a golden stream to people near and far giving them best that your heart contains first to the people around here in this area and further afield to the towns, the villages, the cities the whole country let it flow like a giant stream pure in its origin warm and caring let's go further to countries and peoples that we don't know all being part of our own family of mankind picture them in your mind be together with them in love Put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy that comes from giving and loving. Direct the love and compassion towards yourself and feel the sense of safety and security and well-being that arises from that Fill yourself with a feeling of love and warmth and care from head to toe and surround yourself with it.
May people everywhere have love and compassion in their hearts.